0: Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the Medislp Collective and Medislp Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together, we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to day two of the SLP Summit Speaker Series, where I'm digging up clips from prior Spall Your Pride podcast interviews that I've done with several of our speakers for this weekend's SLP Summit. Today, I'm featuring several of our PEDS med SLP speakers. I have such a special spot in my heart for pediatric clinicians. As a mom who spent lots of time in the NICU, and I relentlessly advocate for my son to receive the best therapy I can find, this brand of clinicians has all my respect in the world. Brand, flavor, specialty, whatever you want to call it, SLPs who dedicate their time to infants, children, and all the fragile tiny humans out there set the stage for the future. That's why we're dedicating an entire day to pediatric MedSLP education during our two day MedSLP summit. It's just not possible to cram everything into one day when we have an entire life- lifespan to cover. Today, you'll get to know four of the seven pediatric MedSLPs who will be speaking on Sunday during the summit. Maybe you're familiar with them already. We have Ramya Kumar, Katie Threlkeld, Jenny Reynolds, and Erin Forward. If you plan on joining us this Sunday, you'll be learning all about advancing feeding skills, play in feeding therapy pediatric AAC, and up-to-date feeding intervention in the NICU. You can register for the metaSLP Summit at www.medislpcollective.com forward slash summit. It's totally free to watch, and you have the option to pay a small fee if you want ASHA CEUs reported. Okay, I'll stop flapping my gums now and let you get to know some of our brilliant pediatric Medislp speakers through previously recorded discussions I've had with them on this podcast, starting with Ramia. Enjoy.
1: Sure. Um, I'm Ramya Kumar. I am a pediatric speech-language pathologist, um, or I guess a neonatal therapist is, again, another term that's being used more recently. Um, I practice at a hospital in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. It is a level three NICU. Um, I started my journey in, um, well... Inpatient pediatric rehab and my fellowship. And then I continued my fellowship in outpatient rehab, um, working with NICU grads and uh, feeding difficulties. And then I've kind of cross trained in the NICU. um, And now I'm full time in the NICU. So cool. Kind of journeyed through my way.
2: Yeah.
0: Did you did you always want to work? in the NICU with babies or, you know, was that your goal when you were in grad school?
1: Nope. Um, I actually, <laughs> <laughs> I actually went to grad school fully thinking I was going to work with, um, adults and neuro stuff. My, um, my first master's, my previous background is in neuroscience.
3: Okay. Um,
1: so when I went, I was in, I worked in higher ed for a while and went back for a second career. Um, and so I was like, yep, yeah, I'm just going to do aphasia and TBI. And then I was a Peds magnet and, uh, how cool. The experience that came my way was pediatrics, so I figured I should go with the path I'm being led on.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, and then awesome. I just had
1: excellent mentorship um, during the second part of my CFY. Uh, oh, cool. And one of my mentors was in the NICU, so that's kind of how I ended up with that.
0: All right. Awesome.
1: So I think we're going to answer the you
0: know question we've heard a bajillion times <laughs> over today. How does someone even start to venture to decide they want to work in the NICU
1: mm-hmm. um, I think there's like different angles you can take to this but um because I get asked that question a lot also um, I feel like what I typically tell people and what's worked for me so I mean obviously you could start because you had a great fellowship there or you know you landed you just happened to have an acute care position and you got trained um, but I think what set has set me up for success, and I tell students and clinical fellows is starting in the outpatient setting. So, um, a lot of hospital outpatient rehab staff kind of can run NICU follow-up program, either formal or informal. Um, and I think starting there was great because it kind of gives you a safe environment. They're not like hooked to monitors and tubes, and you know all these things, and they're a little bit definitely more stable. Um, and you also kind of have the value of time or the, the gift of time. So you can say, okay, like, you know, come back next week and you can research what, yeah. what you need versus you know, yeah. having to know it in the moment. Um, so I think it is a great place to actually practice your skill set and be really comfortable. And that's the same, I think, with early intervention now as well. In a lot of places they are looking for more, um, more therapists that actually have knowledge base with these medically complex kids and NICU grads. Um, and I find that having had that experience for almost like maybe three, four years before I was doing full-time NICU, I feel like I can advocate better for my patients now in the NICU because I can tell, I can talk to neonatologists or I can talk to nurses and say in outpatient long-term, this is what I've seen. Um, and so that started here in the NICU of how, whether how we, how we fed them or how we positioned them or what GI stuff we had. So I think it gives you more of a confidence um, level to actually do that advocating, um, in a pretty cutthroat environment. Um, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, you that's know, awesome. obviously there's theory and knowledge base and all of that. Um, and you know, we can we'll probably go into that at some point. Um, yeah. but I think that almost starting not in the NICU, but with that demographic sets you up for more success moving forward.
0: That's, yeah. That's a great, that's a great tip. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's see, where do you want to start? Should we start with what what ASHA has to say?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I kind of like, you know, just pulled some excerpts uh, from their scope of practice, which was awesome, is awesome that ASHA has one specific to NICU therapists. Um, I think the biggest point too is, um, you know, like often we feel like, like I'll hear the term, oh, you know, pediatrics is just Little people, just adults, but little bodies. And no, it's completely different. And then we'll yeah. hear, oh, neonatal therapy is just pediatric therapy in the NICU, which is also very different. Um, so I think, you know, really identifying that difference is huge. Um, there's a lot that we have to know, not just about our discipline, but um, just infant development, um, development of um, like muscles and sensory systems and, you know, all kinds of things, but also a lot of family centered. Um, care because the core of everything um, is really creating that infant-parent bond and dyad because parents are parenting in a very atypical environment. Um, They expected to go home with their baby, and they're not, and they're having to come in at certain times. Um, So I think a lot of that knowledge base is important, and ASHA does talk about that. Um, They do talk about ASHA and then AOTA, which is for OTs, and then APTA for PTs, all of them talk about being in the NICU as an advanced clinical practice.
4: Um,
1: So I know in some areas, because of maybe staffing needs or, what again, chance or whatever fell into your lap, um, there are NICUs that have new grads or even fellows or um, clinicians with fewer years of experience, but it is technically um, an advanced level of practice. Um, And I think for those reasons that I mentioned, um, so they do, I mean, if you look at the ASHA guidelines, there is a detailed list of all of the roles that NICU therapists have to play. Um, and I'll just say neonatal therapists, I, get, um, I guess. And then it actually details what that scope looks like for each role. Um, everything from, again, the parenting concept, knowing about staffing in the NICU, which which can be, it's it's a tough environment to navigate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. the medical providers and nurses are very protective of their kids, you know, rightfully so. So, again, yeah. having that confidence and knowledge base to navigate that um, and yeah. make your point. And then, obviously, all the medical things that are going on um, in that population. So, really having knowing all of that is key. Yeah. All right. I hope I'm answering your question.
0: Of course. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, so I'll just say Ramia provided a really super detailed outline and a lot of notes for you guys to, so we're not going to go through Ash's whole scope of practice here, but um, you guys can download the show notes after the episode and read up on all of these if this is something that interests you. So
1: Yeah, and I did want to point out, Teresa, I think I put it in the notes as well, Um, there is a national... Association for Neonatal Therapists that many people may or may not know. Um, it is called NANT, um, the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, and I believe the link will be in the notes. Um, and they also have a scope of practice document that spans across disciplines um, and really talks about what, ne- what neonatal therapy is, what a neonatal therapist is, what kind of um, knowledge base you need to have theoretically, but then also at, the, at a practice level. So that's a really great starting point as well for awareness.
0: Okay. Is that for all all disciplines? Mm-hmm. Is that OTPD speech? Yes. Oh, okay, yeah. Cool. They
1: actually um, pulled from all of those three organizations and then okay. created their scope of practice.
0: Okay. So is that, so I'm guessing that's not just limited to feeding. It's just kind of more of a general.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cause I know, um, you know, this episode's kind of raw for me cause my son was in the NICU for 15 days and it's something I wouldn't wish upon anyone. But, um, I I guess the biggest struggle for me was that they didn't have SLPs in the NICU
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and it was an OT that worked with him. And I just, I I don't trying to think how to say this tactfully, but I felt like I knew more about feeding and swallowing, like, than she did. Mm-hmm. And and that was so frustrating. You know, I was like, we need an SLP up here. We need an SLP. And she's mm-hmm. like, no, OT does feeding
2: mm-hmm. in
0: the NICU. And I was like, what? So I guess, you know, for me, that was kind of... I didn't realize that... I, I know in some parts of the country, OT mm-hmm. OTs still do some part of feeding mm-hmm. and swallowing. But in the NICU, that just totally threw me for a loop.
1: Yeah, they do. There are, like you said, there are definitely lots of states where that is the case, and it's actually sometimes in some states even hard for SLPs to get in the NICU because it is very OT dominated. Um, I'm fortunate that I'm in a system where we have OTPT and speech, and we kind of all work pretty collaboratively and together, but we kind of know our strengths and, you know, where one ends and the other starts, so to speak. I mean, it is, it's hard to fully define because we're actually all working on everything to some degree yeah um, yeah but especially i think when it comes to like swallowing more than the actual cuz there's feeding and there's swallowing right so, right right i think it's that's that's where it gets cloudy because it is more than one component
0: um right and that's kind of where my brain was at you know i was like okay cool yeah you'll work on feeding mm-hmm. you know when is the slp going to monitor swallowing right. you know like clearly my little guy is having trouble mm-hmm. you know why are we not concerned about this you know and and just being yeah. told that oh he'll figure it out like that just didn't right. sit right with me. Yeah
1: and even just from so, the perspective of um instrumental, I mean
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: I mean I have heard, I know I think I think we've all seen some of those posts even in adult land where OTs are doing MBSs or something. Or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. Um but yeah, I mean that is in our scope of practice to do instrumentals. So
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well sorry, I think that was just a total yeah. random tangent, but <laughs>
1: But I mean, I think it, it, you know, like you asked about Nant, I think the reason why they pull from everything is because as a neonatal therapist, I mean, yeah, while I'm working on feeding, I'm also working on, you know, potentially positioning or I'm, I'm looking at tone changes. I'm looking at, okay, this tightness is happening here. And is that coinciding with their desatting and their swallowing? So like, there's a lot that, that can tell me or their state regulation. Um, so, I mean, we are looking at a lot of that neuromotor development, um, in the context of feeding, so so I think that's that's why it's nice that they're pulling from all of there and telling us we need to know all of it. So
0: yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, um, so what's next? What what every rehab manager needs to know about OTPD and speech.
1: Yeah, so Nant like the. The NAND website has a lot of just really neat, like just blogs and articles. And um, it's really built, it's built by therapists to really help um, support other therapists to get buy-in from their, their leadership or really understand that this is a specialty. Um, And so I was reading that recently. I had read it a long time ago and then it happened to pop up again. Uh, But I think in there, like I, you'll see in the show notes, but it does talk specifically about how... um, like all of the different national organizations across our disciplines, but then also the AAP, the American Association of Pediatrics, um, does make the distinction between pediatric versus neonatal therapy uh, from an expertise um, standpoint. So I think that's just, again, just a validation of you, you do need to have advanced, whether that's you're using this to advocate to get more, more training from your managers or the fact that, uh, okay, you can't just be thrown in and expect to do it all. Because there are facilities where – adult therapists are floating into the NICU or, right. or all of a sudden being asked to do an MBS or things like that. So, um, so that was just, just kind of a fun article and a lot of like, yep, yep, yep. And <laughs> validation moments, but, um, it does empower people, I think, to present that up. Um, so my name is
2: Katie Threlkeld. I am a speech pathologist and I have been a speech pathologist for almost eight years, which is crazy. <laughs> uh, I started out with- Working I thought I wanted to work in schools. I come from a family of teachers and so I've you know have a lot of respect and experience in the education setting and did my CFY in um Missouri we call it ACSE, so early childhood special education program and was there very uh exposed to AAC for the first time in a way that I wasn't in grad school. And so I was working with a lot of these kind of complex kiddos and um, decided to apply for a PRN job that summer in a children's outpatient clinic that works with a lot of very um, complex uh, kiddos in terms of their motor cognition speech language abilities and they ended up actually having a full-time opening and so I took that and that's really where I kind of dove into kind of some of my specialty areas so I did that for several years um, and then went back and started working on my PhD in 2018. Um was hoping to be done by now but it's kind of Along with everyone in the world, COVID's thrown a little bit of a wrench into that. So um, I still practice. I work for an AC company as well, doing a lot of their education program development and then hoping to get my PhD done. I love teaching. I've gotten to teach the AAC course the last two summers at the university I'm at, and it's just a reminder as to why I went back and did the crazy PhD
0: pride. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I love it, Katie. Yeah. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, I think the people that listen to this podcast are, you know, more medical speech mythologists, you know, obviously swallow your pride. We talk about swallowing a lot, but what I, what I think is so fascinating is there's sort of been this push for more SLPs to be more well-rounded. And I mean that in, you know, learning more about motor speech, learning more about AAC, you know, we get these patients that are so medically complex and some, for some people, all we're used to doing is swallowing. you know, and we, we need to, we owe it to our patients to be a little more well-rounded and not even, if we're not even AAC experts, that's one thing, but at least have a, Little understanding of what our patients require and how to get them that help. So I think, you know, it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. I, I sort of love how you're gentle in your approach of like, you can do this, like, you know, reach out to this person. This is what you need to do next. Like, you know, very baby steps, hand holding. And, and I mean that in a kind, respectful way. I don't mean it in a, in a snarky way, but. Yeah, I, I, I'd just really love to hear a little bit more about your approach and, and sort of how you got into working with more of these medically complex patients.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of twofold. I worked at pediatric um, clinic, so it was outpatient, and we had what's called our intensive therapy program, and we were, at the time, we of the only ones in the Midwest doing this, and um, when I started working there, it was PT and OT, so these very complex kiddos would come in. They would do PT for three hours a day, OT for two hours a day, and five days a week for four weeks. So kind of like an inpatient rehab, but not because of just the needs for these kiddos. Uh, we had a Ronald McDonald house across the street, so families could stay there. They could bring siblings, but then their kid could get this very specialized intensive therapy program. Um, and we're, of course, I'm from Missouri, a very rural state, and so these families were having to travel from far away. They'd be able to go home for the weekends, come back, do this program. So when I started, they're like, hey, we really, we need speech. And no one in the clinic has really wanted to take on this kind of a beast <laughs> uh, because like you said, it, it wasn't going to be AAC specific. It was going to be, the, you know, feeding and swallowing and speech language, cognition, tons of motor speech. We had a lot of kiddos with cerebral palsy. So a wide range of dysarthria uh, presentations and then AAC. And so I am kind of just in, and I am the type of person to, um, I like to ask questions. I probably, I I probably annoyed all my professors in school (laughs) looking back on it. Now that I've taught, um, I love to ask questions, a little bit of a know-it-all and the fact that like I want to know. Um, I don't think I know everything, but I'm like, feed me everything. I'm, I'm a sponge. Um, and so I really kind of started to learn a little bit about everything in terms of these really specific areas for complex kiddos and On the other end, I did my medical placement in grad school in an inpatient rehab. And so I was also seeing um, these AAC needs for adults and adults with uh, medical history of gunshot wound, stroke, uh, tons of TBI. And so, like you were saying, a lot of these patients would come in and in that acute setting, you know, swallowing is such like the immediate concern? Do we need to be sending first personal study? Are they doing two feeds? Whatever it may be. By the time they got to inpatient rehab, that's when we were starting to address more of that kind of functional communication component. So I was seeing AAC on that end, and then I was seeing AAC through um, this intensive program and just really wanted to learn everything I could because I personally... I did have an AAC course, and not everyone got that, but it was short. It was a summer course, so I was like, I don't remember anything. I was just trying to make it through the day so I could go, you know, swimming with my friends on the weekend. And so I really had to uh, learn as much as I could about AAC. But I feel very lucky that I've gotten to see it, you know, birth to a 100 and in a wide range, low tech, high tech, mid tech, progressive, chronic, uh, kind of the gamut. And so that's been really fun for me.
0: Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, where should we start today? Want to dive into first?
2: I feel like, like you said, this is probably a lot of medical. And so, what are what's your experience with AAC? Have you done much with AAC? Probably more adult. Yeah.
0: So, so you know, it's fascinating. So, I have my brother has cerebral palsy as well. So, growing up, and this is actually, I don't know if I've told this story. I might have, but actually, the reason I got into speech pathology was my brother had had an AAC device. I mean, I remember this thing. It was just this big, clunky. Box. It it actually was like the It was like a shoebox. That's the size it was. It was the size of a shoebox, and it had oh gosh, if I could remember, I'd say probably twenty to twenty four like buttons on it, which was way too many for him. He needed something that was like you know maybe two, four, six, eight at the most, but it but it was way too many. So, anyways, I remember being frustrated with this. I remember my mom being frustrated with this. Like he would deprogram the thing. I would go in and like reprogram the voices, like some words that we would use at home, like the speech therapist at school would program different words. And I'm like, he doesn't, that's not the word we use for that object. Like, I just remember there was a lot of that going on Mm -hmm. and it was effective ish. Mm -hmm. I say, because it, you know, he, he understood its purpose. He used it for what he could, but I just, you know, looking back now, I'm like, gosh, there's just technology is amazing. You know, there's just, it's, it's awesome how much has evolved. And I just wish we could go back you know, 30 years to when we were little and, and have him have the technology that's available now. But anyways, that was the reason I got into speech pathology. Cause my mom was like, you, you know, you were so interested in this device. You were so interested in helping him communicate. And then, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I did do an under, I did a honors thesis in undergrad with AAC. Uh-huh. So I was still interested in it, but then I just, I don't know. I went down the swallowing rabbit hole and yeah. Fast forward to, you know, now my son, um, so my son's nonverbal and, um, a wonderful, wonderful colleague. I won't share her name because I didn't ask her permission, but she really encouraged me, like, get him AAC, get him going with AAC. And I was like, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't even know where to start. She sent me an iPad with just a few like free programs and she just, you know, did a few lessons with me, like, just program these words and program these. And it was so overwhelming, but at the same time, Not like I made it this big mental block, like I made it this big, huge, like mountain that I had to climb. And then I had this like meeting with myself one day, and I was like, This is not about you, Teresa. This is about your son communicating. Like, this get over yourself, get over your fears, get over whatever apprehension you have about programming it. And this is about your child being able to communicate with you. And so I had to like reframe it in my brain. And so Luckily he's at a wonderful wonderful school that has an SLP that's an AAC specialist and she worked with, you know, the free iPad with the f- the free programs for a while and then we actually he just got a brand new Dynabox like a month ago. So we're still, I, I, yeah, me and my husband are it's still, a work still in progress. learning. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah, he has a new SLP at school now too. So we're all just sort of getting used to each other, but I'm excited because he he's a, such a smart, smart kid. And it's, it's so funny. He has, he has an SLP for feeding too. And she's telling me that she uses like a reward system. Like, you know, if he does these exercises, she'll you know he can pick a show to watch on you know the Dynavox, and so she kept hitting the button for, or she kept hiding the button to um like to watch a show. She's like, you have to get through your therapy first. He kept uncovering it and finding oh, yeah. the button for he's the like, show. <laughs> yes, and she's like, I don't know how this kid like he's manipulating this thing so well. So. I'm like I, he's crazy smart, so I I know like the sky's the limit with it. But mm-hmm. so I That's just absolutely. have personal experience with it. I know you know work experience. You, you know I think I've, I've worked with patients on you know trunks and vents that just use basically like communication. You know low tech boards. But in my actual like work life, I've not used much AAC at all, and I regret it. Not that I regret it. I just wish I had. I wish I had known more. You know when. When you know more, you do more. So
2: Absolutely. And I think that's what's hard is because, you know, as you said, our field, we do have to... Our scope is just so tremendously huge. And so you are thinking cognition, speech, language, feeding, swallowing, communication, AAC, all of that. And you, you're going to do, like you said, what you know. Yes you are in a situation where you have this really uh, strong swallowing skill set, that's what you're going to do. I think it's setting specific too. Like I said, I, you know, I've never done an acute placement. And so, um, that would, I would have no clue. I'd be like, you know, nine, one, one, somebody, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, and, Once I've had the patients, they're stable, they're at inpatient rehab, that's when I immediately want to dive into, like you said, whether it's low-tech, a free app on an iPad, anything that can provide them with an outlet. You know, a lot of these patients, in my experience, are in a period of grief um, in terms of what they've just experienced. And I think AAC sometimes can be, you know, can kind of open up that door to say, yeah, there's potential. I can move forward, I can recover, I have the opportunity to communicate and participate in the decisions that are being made um, in terms of my health. And so I think that's really important. And then like you were saying, the technology, you know, that's it's kind of twofold. It's incredibly intimidating. And that's what I run into a lot is that people are intimidated by it because it changes all the time. When your phone is updated, you're like where's this? Where's yeah. that? <laughs> I, you know, like <laughs> yeah. even just my phone being updated. I, I just updated to Windows, whatever, 10 or 11 on my computer and I was like, whoa, 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 this is totally different. But then, you know, a week later, you don't even remember what the old setting was. And so that's why I tell people, you just got to go for it. It's going to change and that's okay. And um, you're not going to know everything about it. That's okay. Um,
4: my name's Jenny Reynolds and I am a speech pathologist in Dallas, Texas. I've worked at um an acute care um hospital Baylor University Medical Center for the past 20 years and I have um been involved in the um and worked worked all over the hospital and worked with adults in the trauma ICU and oncology and stroke but I've also been a part of and worked in the NICU for the past 20 years um you know Models in the NICU change over time. And so I had um, initially a model where I was just doing the instrumental swallowing evals in the NICU, the video swallow studies. And then we, um, as I became more integrated into the NICU, I, with the occupational therapist and the physician, the neonatologist, we built a um, multidisciplinary fees team um and so that is probably in the last it's been a 10-year process but we've had the team going for the last five years and so um that our physician you know honestly where it kind of got started is our physicians were just questioning um the radiation with the video swallow study and and the use of barium and all of these things. And so they said, is there another way? And so we described the fees. I had done fees in the adult population um, for about 12 years at that time. And um, we talked to the physicians about it. And then that's where our journey got started.
0: I love it. And, well, and I love that you said that it, you know, it's been going on for five, almost 10 years now. You know, I get, I get so many emails from people that are like, I want to start this program today, yeah. you know, and, and, and I, I love people's, uh, you know, I love their excitement. Um, yeah. but the reality is that's great to put goals in place, but it's not going to happen today. <laughs>
4: exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> um, so I'll add a little personal piece in here. So my son was in the NICU for 15 days and for feeding issues, of course. And it was just, it was horrible because I so badly wanted to scope yeah. him, but I didn't know how to do baby fees. So I, yeah. I'm so I'm so excited to have you on here. Because this is just so personal to me. And I always say in my next life, I'm going to come
2: back and do baby fees. So yes. we'll, we'll see where that <laughs> ends up. But,
0: all right. Um, so let's see, where, where do you want to start here, Jenny?
4: Well, we can start um, just talking about a little bit, like I'll just kind of if you want, I'd like to kind of describe as I started talking about our journey of what even how did fees in the NICU even come up and yeah, absolutely. and why. So um, like I said, our neonatologists were we 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 did video swallow studies. Um, The issue is, as we all know, is with the infants, we're giving them barium. We're not looking at breast milk or formula. And we know there's a lot of different viscosities looking at second formulas and obviously different breast milk and breast milk fortified. And so um, we know that with all those different viscosities, we're not exactly sure what we're testing with. With varabar and barium, and so, um, and the thicknesses of barium. And so, we're, we're able to get some information about the physiology of the infant swallow, but we're also missing some components, um, knowing that these infants they're not being held during a video swallow study. They're not. And and so we wanted to ask some questions about would fees be possible um, in the NICU. And so I had gone to the Cincinnati children's fees course, their pediatric fees course um, by Claire, you know, Dr. Claire Miller and um, Dr. Uh, Wilging the ENT. And it's an excellent course on fees. I had also, I mean, when I was training for adults, I had gone to Susan Langmore's course, but um, the Cincinnati Children's fees course for pediatrics. It was excellent. And they had an hour lecture on NICU fees and the utilization, clinical utility of fees in the NICU. And I talked to them afterward and just asked a lot of questions about how do they use it in the NICU? Why do they use it in the NICU? And, um, you know, they talked about using it for looking at secretion management, using it for some pre, like pre-feeding, looking at is the infant safe to start feeding, oral feeding, um, and then for some of their cases where they felt like the infant wasn't maybe safe to transport to radiology. And so that gave me some ideas of how they clinically used it. And then I came back to our physician team at Baylor and we talked and um, we had to meet with risk management and compliance and legal and all of the wonderful things that we did to start the adult fuse program. We actually... Uh, work together to uh, talk about if infant fees would be possible. And like you said, you think that you're going to do this in maybe a year or two, and then you're like, oh, this is a five-year process to build this program. Um, And then we had to look at competency, and that was a big thing that risk management wanted to talk about for an extended period of time is how are you going to, I know you have a process to show your competency for adults, but how are you going to show your competency for this age specific population? And so I actually worked with an ENT from the Children's Hospital that uh, was willing to had privileges to come into our hospital and actually check off my competencies for passing the scope with infants uh, in the NICU. And I, I felt obviously our compliance team felt really good about that. And I felt good about that because I knew from an, from a, um, anatomy perspective, it was going to obviously be very different than adults. And I, Uh, you know, in the, you can only learn so much in training at a course. And so I just wanted an ENT available so that, you know, I, I could learn from that ENT about, um, normal anatomy versus abnormal anatomy of the infant, um, Obviously, knowing that several of these infants are intubated for extended periods of time, and not knowing what is the norm of what you're going to see when you put, you know, when you do the endoscopy. So, um, we decided that the ENT would come and observe, like, my first uh, five to 10 passes based on how I did with interpretation and passing the scope. And I felt like because I had done hundreds of adult fees, I felt like I was comfortable with, with, he was comfortable with that number and I was comfortable with that number. Um, and then we set up a process. So I, I am not in a children's hospital. I'm in a birthing hospital, a level three NICU, but in a, a large urban birthing hospital. And so I, we don't have access like a children's hospital to an in-house, you know, pediatric pulmonologist, ENT cardiologist, all of that. We have to actually have the physicians come in either from the outside, from the children's hospital, or we have to ship the baby to the children's hospital for a further work at something extensive done at our birthing hospital. And so we actually just determined a process because I know at some children's hospitals, they have the ENT that does the endoscopy and the speech pathologist, um, collaborates with the ENT to do the interpretation of the swallow. Um, with our hospital, that was just not going to be a setup that we could do because we didn't have an ENT that would be available to pass the scope every time. And so how we set it up is that I would be the endoscopist and then we would have one of our occupational therapists that would be the feeding therapist and feed the infant during the procedure. And then we have a cloud where we could put the video on the cloud and the ENT could review the video to ensure and to help me from a teaching perspective. Is there anything that needs to be flagged from an airway or anatomical perspective? And, um, our compliance team felt, um, really, um, that that was sufficient, that we were going to be able to, um, ensure that these infants got what they needed. And if the ENT saw anything that they were concerned about, they would either come in and do their own, you know, um, flexible endoscopy, or, um, if it was something significant, they would, the baby would need to be transferred to the children's hospital for a further workup and possible bronchoscopy. So, uh, rigid Bronx so um, I I think that I felt like that was um, an adequate um, setup for us for our team now I know it the large children's hospitals that are doing infant fees, they have the entire multidisciplinary team right there. The ENT typically does do the endoscopy, and then the speech pathologist, maybe the feeding therapist and doing the interpretation, or they are doing the interpretation and potentially a parent or a nurse is feeding the infant. So there are several different models, and I just like to say in my teaching that I think all of the models are great. You just want to make sure that you have a setup and a process for competency. So um, that's kind of how we got started with our program. Um, And then that led to... Okay, so we have our multidisciplinary team um, that also the next step was our, how can we get the equipment that we need? And so um, we actually, I would encourage everyone, we, we worked with our foundation and our hospital to get the um finances to purchase the equipment because it is expensive. Um, I will say not, I I am definitely not paid by any of the (laughs) manufacturers, so I'm not endorsing a specific uh, piece of equipment, but I will say that Pentax Medical and Olympus both have pediatric um video scopes and flexible um, um, fiber optic scopes. Um, we started with a fiber optic scope that was a 1.9 millimeter scope um, made by Olympus. It was the smallest fiber scope on the market at the time. Um, it was 1.9 millimeters at the tip and 2.2 at the sheath. Um, it is it it So that's what we started with because it was the smallest on the market. Um, It worked great. It's just the image is grainier and smaller. Um, So we decided to purchase the video scope uh, that was 2.6 millimeters um, by Olympus. And, you know, the camera is at the tip of the scope. And it's HD-like. And I will say that the difference is amazing. And the infants were able to tolerate the 2.6 millimeter with no problem. We've used that on probably 150 procedures so far and not had any, we have never had a problem passing the scope in the Nair. And typically I pass on the same side as the NG tube and we have had no problem. And it's probably about the same size as a six French NG tube, kind of between a six French and an eight French NG tube. The exciting news is that Pentax Metal just came out with a Um, 2.4 millimeter video scope so they have uh, you know the same quality and it's it and I've actually seen it it's amazing quality and it's a little bit smaller and so I'm excited to tell everyone you know if you're going to um, start a program, I would encourage you, if you can, to get the money for the video scope because I think the image is so much clearer and I think you can get a lot better images, especially if you're going to have an ENT reviewing the video. Um, and it's nice that, they, that there are a couple of options on the market. Um, and then st- stores and Indo and some of those have other fiber optic uh, pediatric scopes. So there are some other companies that offer that. So
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know. And you said that the image was smaller
0: and grainier with the old system. I know a few companies now have the larger image available. So it, it's the size of the adult scope,
4: which yes. is great.
0: Because I know a lot of people didn't want to use the PED scopes because the image was so poor, but I'm not sure which companies, but some are definitely coming out with the much bigger image. So, yes. you know, that's something to look into too, when you're trying out new equipment.
4: Yes, absolutely. And if your
0: facility is interested in purchasing a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies, please check out our sponsor, NDOHD, that's NDOHD www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. NDOHD is a compact fee system. It's a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. It is designed by a speech pathologist specifically for fees with a system storage of 100,000 by 10 minute studies, highly maneuverable car, integrated serial audio, remote access for service. So, at Altara Vision, they combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. So reach out to them at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fees, requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. And as always, I am eternally
4: grateful to EndoHD for continuing to sponsor this podcast. So, um... Yeah so the our first two steps was getting our competencies process set up then obviously um looking at equipment and we did I, you know I always say you know there's there's challenges when you ask a hospital to purchase equipment but I think if you if you work with your foundation and you get creative there are ways, and that we ended up finding, a they, our, our hospital, our foundation, found a donor, a local donor that wanted to give to the NICU. And oh, that's so, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So it was exciting, and that was a way that, because I don't know that we would have been able to get the equipment if we had not, you know, waited and been patient and, and kind of given, we kind of gave a little pitch to our foundation to say, hey, this is what this is were so excited about it, and they were kind of excited about it once they heard what it was and felt like they could go um, sell it to a donor to, to purchase, um, and and we did, and so that was exciting, and then we kind of worked with our physician team and our multidisciplinary team of dieticians and lactation and therapy um neonatologists to develop our procedure and our protocol. And so that was kind of our next step. And that took a while to determine what did we want our our fees protocol for bottle feeding and breastfeeding to look like? And who did we want to be there? and And I think that you know, my, one of my, um, lessons learned is you just want to ensure that there's a lot of clarity of team roles and who's going to do what. And I think it, it helps on the front end to really have, um, a, a a great, um, procedure that, um, runs smoothly, uh, when you kind of, when each person knows clearly what their role will be in the procedure, which I know seems simple, but I think we had to really talk as a team of, okay, even on our breastfeeding fees, procedures, what is the lactation's role? What is the occupational therapist's role? What is the speech pathologist's role? And so we really worked on that and kind of, and looked at, you know, what do we want the inclusion criteria to be for this exam and all of those things? So um, that, that took us a while and, and we worked on, Uh, refining our procedure and our protocol and then at that point we felt like um, you know we were actually ready to um, actually have some patients and and look for the best patient to start this on and we we did it with about 10 patients and um, I think we were just really we learned a lot of lessons about what to do and what not to do and um and then our our um, physician group encouraged us that if basically they kept asking us where's the research where's the research where's the research?" and we said, well, there's lots of research in pediatric fees, but when you look at the studies that were done and dr you know Cincinnati children's did several of them um at, when you look at the studies, probably 15 to 20, the, the patients in the studies ranged anywhere from three months to 21 years old. So you had a wide range of pediatric ages. And so they said, well, what?" but where are the studies that have been done in the NICU? And I said, they're not there. Yeah. <laughs> they're not out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, our physicians were like, well, then why aren't we doing the study? And I said, what? I was like, I am a clinician. I am a clinician. And and he said, okay, well, you can be a clinician, but we can also work on how do we set up a research study. So we ended up partnering with um, Texas Women's University and one of the PhD speech pathologists from there. And it was a really nice partnership for us, especially as clinicians and the physicians, to just help us with the IRB process and learning how to set up a research study, um, because I had not done that before. And so that was, it was a hard process and a learning curve straight up, but I am thankful for the, um, all of the people who came around us to help mentor us through this process.
3: So my name is Erin Forward. I am a pediatric speech pathologist and certified lactation counselor. I work at Cincinnati Children's Hospital uh, working on their feeding team and also seeing a lot of autistic patients and patients that are non-speaking. I have experience in home health, early intervention, outpatient, NICU, PICU, GI clinic. So I've kind of seen kids in every setting. And Karen and I were lucky enough to work together for three years um, in clinics that were right next to each other. So I've learned a lot from her. We've shared a lot of patients and she's kind of led me on this journey of child-led, floor-time, play-based therapy that I think is helpful with any of our kids. So um, she's kind of my partner in crime, which is nice to have in an OT. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I love to hear that. All right, Karen, tell us
0: a little bit about yourself.
2: So my name is Karen McWatters. I'm a pediatric OT I am still based in South Carolina and Erin moved to Cincinnati without me, which Ooh. is okay. <laughs> I have worked in, in home, in school, clinic settings, EI, a little bit of everything except for inpatients. So that's, um, the little bit of a difference between Erin and I. And I always think it's funny that Erin says I led her down this journey of play based thing because we really led each other. We started at the exact same time. At the companies that we ended up working for side by side, we started within like two months of each other. And then um, we started this journey together. And part of what we're going to talk about today is one of the kids that brought us. um,
3: So Karen and I, a lot of what we talk about is what we've learned in the clinic and how we've kind of had these experiences and had these like light bulb moments of, oh, wait, this connects with this what you, what i'm doing in regards to language and speech is connecting to what you're working on in regards to motor development and regulation and sensory which i am a big proponent of ot's don't own sensory and we play a huge role in regulation because communication is incredibly regulating and as karen always says sensory is neuro so if we are supposed to understand neuro we are supposed to understand sensory so we would have and we're going to talk specifically about one patient we worked with, but we, our story is that we shared this, this autistic patient and I, we saw him each for two hours a week. So I would pass him off to Karen one week, day of the week, and Karen would pass him off to me. And so after a while, we started obviously explaining what was happening in our sessions and started connecting these moments like, oh, wait. I'm seeing this growth in his language and you're seeing this growth in his ability to sequence movements and his ability to plan more tasks and play and sequence more aspects of play. And then we started to to learn from each other. And I was able to take things that she was doing to help him grow in his play schemas. And she was able to take things that helped him grow in his language. And they, they really seemed to go parallel from each other. And One thing we also loved was this idea of embodied cognition and how we can embody this meaning and language and help expand this language and play. And it was so beautiful our ability to help children understand themselves more, understand their body, understand what they were feeling, and and explain that. And our favorite phrase to use, and our favorite phrase that kids would say, is "I have an idea." And when our kids would start to say "I have an idea," and we would help them work through that idea is that circle of praxis and also what kids need for language. And I mean, we would cry after sessions because of the, the magic that we were starting to see happen. And, and we were like, there's something to this. We have to find the, and we are very intentional about the courses that we take and, and we love research. And so we were digging deeper into these articles from psychology, from OT, from speech, because so much of what we were doing wasn't just housed in the speech pathology literature. And so that's something I'm so grateful for learning from Karen is like, how do I feel comfortable understanding how OTs, because they write articles different than speech does. Every discipline kind of has their own way of writing. And so how do I understand the frameworks that OTs are using to write their articles, how am I understanding better the framework that psychology is using so I can better learn from them? Because we have so much to learn from them too.
0: Yeah. It's so funny you say that. My daughter, who's three now, and um, she's probably going to solve all the world's problems, oh. but she like said so many times to me this morning, I have an idea. And I was like, okay, what is your idea? She said it probably like 10 times. And at first I was like, that's so cute. But I'm like, oh my gosh, I love that her little brain is like saying, these, Mm -hmm. I just think of her like at school with her little friends, like with their just imaginations running wild. So I love that you just said that.
3: Well, and so many of our neurodivergent children and our medically complex children have these ideas, but know that they can't always make them come to fruition, whether it's their motor deficits or their language deficits. We want them to feel like we can use your skills within your zone of proximal development to help these ideas come to fruition and help your imagination grow and help you feel like you have success in what's going on in that beautiful. I had to learn too, because I think, especially in the speech pathology world, when we go to grad school, like you make a lesson plan and you, you want to know what to expect when something's going to happen. So to feel comfortable, just take a step back and just watch the child and try, you know, a lot of what, we do in floor time is is and they're gonna tell us i'm saying the wrong word we refer to it as mirroring but i'm doing what the child is doing not only to just show you i'm here with you but also so i can understand if i turn my head and look at something it actually does look kind of cool the way that you're looking at it like i i get why you're wanting to do that to see how you're playing with those stacking cups that that uh, occupational therapists use a lot to put things yeah, in. Like when a kid picks it up and puts it in their mouth, you're like, no, 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 wait. But like, it does look like a cup that you drink from. So I understand the connection that you're making and I really value this connection that you're making. So how do I start to get into a child's world and recognize how they're seeing it first? Because I'm the professional. My job is not to make the child more like me. My job is to, and I say this even with feeding therapy, When a family comes into my office, if I go into their home, wherever, my job is first to understand them. I think we jump too quickly to, I want to give you recommendations and fix the problem. Like first, this family and this child just want to feel understood. How do I get into your world? How do I recognize what the family's going through? And how do I, as the person that's supposed to understand feeding and language and development, first get us on the same page and meet them where they're at?
0: From infant feeding to pediatric fees to AAC to interprofessional collaboration, you can see why I love this group of PEDS MetaSLP so much. I hope you enjoyed getting a sneak peek into who some of our PEDS MetaSLP Summit presenters are. If you're ready to deep dive into therapy approaches with them this Sunday, December 3rd, don't forget to register for the free summit, free MetaSLP Summit at www.metaslpcollective.com forward slash summit. Hope to see you there. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening,
2: and we'll catch you next week.